Okay, for those of you with questions, remember I'm here at the end as well for that in between the breaks. So if you have any questions then that I haven't answered, you can come down and find me and I will do my best to answer those as clearly as possible for you. Meanwhile, let's move on into this lecture. These are your objectives, which I know that you would have read before. And we'll start off with an abdominal radiograph. So with the abdominal x-ray, not all of the abdominal organs can be clearly seen. So you may wonder, why do we, why do we bother to do it? Well, it still gives us a great idea for the bony structures in here, and also by looking at different things like gas bubbles and the sizes of the different organs, you can get a pretty good idea as to what's going on before you decide to ask for other types of imaging. Just like we would with the thoracic imaging, you have to use a systematic approach, and using that will help you to be able to look at the structures properly to be able to ascertain what's going on. You also assess the image quality. Is it well exposed? Is it not? Is the patient rotated or not, you look for the little uh, notation here that lets you know where is right and where is left. It's very helpful. And you begin to examine the bones. The first thing we see here is the shadow of, or the outline rather, of rib 12. And again, seen on the other side. We can appreciate we have here the vertebrae. And their characters can be identified or addressed as well. We can see we have the pelvic bones here. With This is the iliac crest that's seen. We see a bit of the pelvic inlet that takes us into the true pelvis with the pelvic organs. See here the acetabulum uh, with the head of the femur. And what we're seeing here, these arrows are showing us the, gas, the bowel gas patterns present. This shadow here is of the liver. So we don't get, as mentioned, we don't get detailed ideas of the soft tissue. For that, we'll have to move on to MRI or CT. However, here, we can get an idea as to the overall anatomy and the outline of the structure. Now, we do use the uh, X-rays, if you will, to see some of the soft tissue. In particular, looking here at this ureterogram, what we're able to appreciate, or the reason we're able to appreciate the ureters here is because there's been a contrast that's introduced. And so what we're seeing is the presence of the ureters and looking at their flow. When you do this, you're going to be looking for any, if there's any narrowing of the lumen of the ureter, look for any obstruction of the pelvis or of the calyces, and as well, you're looking for duplication. So this can let you know whether or not your, person, your patient has a bifid ureter or not. If we can go through the arrows together, the first arrow shows you the minor calyces. Here at number two, we're looking at the major calyx. Number three, we're seeing here the widened portion. This is the pelvis, which takes us down into four. That is the ureter. Five shows us here the pelvic inlet as well. We remember if we're seeing the pelvic inlet and we're seeing the ureter coursing down, remember that we will have our common iliac arteries uh, bifurcating at this point, giving us the internal and external. So remember that points three and five are also points of possible constriction. Here we're seeing six, that is the bladder, and seven here, remember from the last slide, that's the acetabulum. Not strictly related, or not related at all to the urinary system, but it is on the radiograph, and all points should be clearly observed. 
The bifid ureter that we had mentioned before, we have again the notation that tells us it's an early and incomplete division of the ureteric bud. And so we have these two ureters that go towards the kidney. The kidney develops. And here we have a lovely view seen on the ureterogram where we can appreciate there's one ureter coming down and another, or rather it's an in, incomplete way to say it. We know we have two aspects of the one ureter, and so we have the bifid, bifid being split. Urinary tract stones are very, very painful, um, and they have, it's usually presents the very sort of colicky pain that comes and goes. It can radiate to different portions, up to the infrascapula possibly, and more commonly down towards the groin, may even radiate down towards the scrotum. Usually we have a change in the urine where it becomes saturated with these different solutes or different salts rather, and you get the precipitation. And stones can be laid down at the points of the minor calyces as we're seeing here, or in the pelvis itself. If we have a staghorn calculus, then what we're seeing is the entire pelvis and the calyces being filled with one large mass. Of course, this is not just painful for the distension, but also painful for trying to, the urine that tries to pass through to come down. And the patient can present and let you know that there's quite a lot of pain on just general aspects. What we're also seeing here on the radiographs, if these stones are particularly large, we can see that they show up quite well because they are solid. So this is an area where a radiograph gives you quite a lot of information. Here in the other in, in radiograph, a little bit lower, we can actually see very clearly the presence of the pelvis and the presence of the major calyces, even going up to the minor. And while that's quite a beautiful image, we probably feel for this person because that means they would have been in some significant pain. Now, if we have this blockage of the stones, uh, sorry, of the staghorn calculi in here, or even of smaller stones, there may be some hematuria. The stones may move forward, backward. They may shift a little bit. That could cause some bleeding. They may be caused by bacteria or, in contrast, depending on where it is, if we have a collection of the urine, we may have an ascending bacterial infection. And so the complications of them would be the infection, as we mentioned, urinary obstruction, because urine cannot easily pass. And if the urine cannot pass, then we'll get breakdown of functioning of the kidney, leading to renal failure. This is a recap of the slide that we had looked at before. It's just another image, which I thought was a good one to include. So we can see that these are the areas where the urinary stones can get lodged. If we move on to this slide, where we talk about the pain from kidneys and the ureters. Now, the pain from kidney stone, or the disease from, the pain from the kidney stone disease, rather, renal calculi, it's commonly referred to the areas of the flanks, the inguinal region, the groin itself, scrotum, labia majora, uh, or the upper thigh area. And as the notation says, it's mainly from the ureters. Remember, the ureters, as we had discussed, receive their innovation, uh, or rather the visceral afferents from that region travels back with the parasympathetics. Now, sorry, from the bladder travels back with the parasympathetics. On this slide here, we see that the sympathetics here supplied from the T11 to L2, um, the higher levels go to the ureteropelvic junction, whereas the lower levels go to the ureterovesicle junction. And so it's an interesting thing when we're looking at this to make sure that we keep in mind our dermatomes. Um, as this shows us, it shows us the different segments that we're seeing here. 
And as well with those dermatomes, we can remember the different nerves that travel along or that came from those original spinal segments, such as the ilioinguinal nerve and the iliohypogastric nerve or the subcostal nerve. And so these are also areas that we can have the pain referred to as well. So having looked at it on schematics, let's have a look at the image here to appreciate the normal sites of, I probably shouldn't say normal, but usual sites of ureteric constriction. And so we see here that we have the kidney. This is the region of the pelvis. We're looking here at the major calyces. The pelvis then leads us into the ureter. And as we follow all the way down looking along this trail, we find that it is patent. We're seeing nothing that has stopped. But however, as we get further down, we see this structure that highlights very well, which lets us know there must be some hardened substance in here. And this is, in fact, the renal calculi or calculus, the renal stone. And here we see that that is just at the entrance into the bladder. And here we see the bladder. So this point is actually at the third, if you will, site of constriction. Let's look at this abdominal CT in a transverse section and try to figure out our relationships around here. First and foremost, I'd like you to note that we have here the lumbar vertebra. And we can see that we have, so this is our posterior aspect. We have here our back muscles. We see the liver that's showing up here on the right-hand side. And the next structure that we can appreciate is our aorta. And coming off that aorta, we see we have the superior mesenteric artery. This portions here, I should add, uh, are the crus of the diaphragm. So we see that these areas uh, would represent the portions of the diaphragm that's anchored. Here we see on the left-hand side the spleen, and just inferior to the spleen, we see here beginning to show up the left kidney, reminding us, as we had mentioned before, and using the knowledge that we have, that the left kidney is somewhat higher than we would find on the right because of the presence of the liver on the right. And of course, the notation comes up now to let us know that's L1. Here for the, another view at this abdominal CT, the transverse section, once we identify our vertebral body and our uh, spinous process, remember that we are posterior, this being our anterior surface. Here we have again the presence of the liver. And we're seeing here that we have the, starting posteriorly, we have the diaphragm, portions of the diaphragm, that being the cruise. We're no longer seeing the, as much of the spleen as we had. We have a small portion remaining, but we're seeing a lot more of here the kidney itself. We're still able to appreciate the aorta running on the vertebral body and also seeing here the left renal vein. We remember that the left renal vein moves over to join the inferior vena cava on the right-hand side. This here is a superior mesenteric artery and that superior mesenteric artery lies over that left renal vein. Again, having mentioned it before, the liver. Now, we'll discuss this arrangement again a little bit later, but I'd like you to sort of remember or star this image, if you will, because it shows a very good representation of what we've known as the uh, nutcracker syndrome, and we'll discuss that in a, little, in a few moments again. But it's where we have the aorta and the renal, left renal vein, 
and being, uh, the left renal vein may be compressed by the superior mesenteric artery. Let's move on. So here is another image of that transverse CT, transverse abdominal CT. Now we have a much clearer view of the left kidney. There is no, none of the spleen seen here in this region. Should have started as I am trying to encourage a systematic approach. Let's go back. Yes, we know this is a transverse section. We're looking first posteriorly. We identify our vertebral body. We look to the right and to the left. We see here to the left, we have our kidney. We're seeing it more uh, and, and we're seeing a greater portion of it than we had previously seen. Here on the right-hand side, we see that we have the liver and portions of the right kidney showing up. We see here we have the left renal vein as it journeys over to the right-hand side. We're still appreciating the aorta in here, and we can see the left renal artery as it comes off. Polycystic kidneys. There are two types of polycystic kidneys. One is an autosomal dominant, and the other is autosomal recessive. They are both characterized by cysts, but the cysts form in different ways and at different times. In the autosomal dominant situation, the cysts form from all the segments of the nephron, and as they are forming continuously and continuously, you find that renal failure is usually found in the adult period. Whereas the autosomal recessive, the cysts form from the collecting ducts, and therefore, we'll find that the kidney can become quite large and cystic and renal failure presents quite early, either in childhood or in infancy. Looking at another abdominal transverse CT, we can appreciate at this side that we have posteriorly most, we see our vertebral body. We can see that going towards the right, we have the uh, liver at this aspect here. We can see we have our bowel, and gases that are present inside. We see we have our left kidney, and there's a different appearance here that we had not seen before. Here we have a perinephric abscess. And this perinephric abscess shows up here with a different uh, appearance than we had appreciated from the kidney itself. When we see perinephric abscess here on this slide, we remember to go back to our coverings, we go back to our regions that we had talked about in our lecture yesterday, where if we have a perinephric or something wrong in the perinephric region, we must think then that there is a problem with the perinephric fat. The perinephric fat, remember, you find outside of the renal capsule, but under the renal fascia. And so that's, that perinephric abscess will be found in that region. This is quite an interesting image. We are lower still. This is our sacrum at this point here, and these are the iliac uh, bones. We see here that we have, so we're really lower than we would expect to find our kidneys being, because now we're heading towards the area of the pelvis. But we see here a structure that represents sort of our kidney. We have these areas in the middle where we're seeing our drainage system as we had seen before, and this actually shows us the ectopic kidney that has uh, stayed in the pelvic cavity and did not ascend. Going on to a coronal view here in this image, we can see that we have on the right-hand side first, we have that dark space, black to be exact, above. And what we're appreciating here is that that's the lung space, the lung uh, region. Just in fear to that, we know we'll have the diaphragm, not very clearly seen because or not on the right-hand side because of the presence of the liver, 
but better seen on the left. So on the right-hand side, we have here the liver, and just beneath that, we find the right kidney. Remember that if your patient were supine, as they would be doing the MRI, but if they were supine in your examinations for ultrasound, you'd want to check that hepatorenal recess because that's an area where fluid can quite easily collect. We can see on this side we have the appearance of the right renal vein, and we can see the ureter coming down this way to get into the pelvis towards the bladder. This shows us the psoas muscle on this side and on this side. Here we see we have the aorta characterized by those calcifications, the renal artery coming towards the left kidney here on the left-hand side. Uh, trying to move on to this slide. And on this slide, what we're seeing is, again, contrast has been introduced into this patient, and we're looking, having a look at the arterial supply. And here we can see that the aorta shows up very well because of the contrast that's been introduced. And what we're able to see are the renal arteries as they branch. We're seeing some other arteries as well within here, but of our focus for the moment is that of the renal artery is going to the right and left sides. In a renal transplant, if there has to be a transplant, um, the kidney that is transplanted or given to the donor, sorry, to the recipient, is attached in the iliac fossa because the idea is to uh, not enter the peritoneal cavity at all. We would not like to interrupt the peritoneum. And so into the area of the iliac fossa, in the area of the pelvis, we can then place this kidney, attach it onto the iliac artery, in this case the external, possibly the common iliac artery, and that gives a very direct blood supply towards the kidney, as we're seeing from these different aspects. Of course, there has to then be the ureter introduced, and there's often a stent placed in the ureter to maintain patency until function is achieved, high proper function is achieved. This slide shows us the posterior approach to the kidney, so it's quite a zoomed-in portion. We're looking at a very narrow field of view, but what we're seeing here are the vertebrae, and these portions remind us that we're looking posteriorly because we're looking at the spinous processes as they're coming towards us, transverse processes here, and no vertebral bodies because those would be anterior and into the image. However, we have to remember that in order to obtain a posterior approach to the kidney, we will have to go through certain muscles. And then we remind you of your structures that you would have learned in MSK, where we have to remember that we go through latissimus dorsi, see here erectus spinae muscles, and as well the quadratus lumborum, remembering that the kidney lies just deep to those uh, and beneath the 11th and 12th ribs. Another thing to remember here is, of course, whenever we perform surgeries, we try to fix what needs to be fixed. We try to avoid any other nerves and arteries, but sometimes that's not always possible. And so you want to make sure that you will avoid the ilioinguinal and iliohypogastric nerves as well as the subcostal nerve. However, if there has been a complication, an unavoidable complication, you may find that your patient may complain of, um, of issues that are related to the innovation regions of these nerves. 
looking here at this bladder x-ray with contrast and here very helpfully labeled one that shows voiding of the sister urethrogram for a two-year-old male and another that shows the female urethra of an eight-year-old child excuse me however the different ages we may not be able to tell from the radiograph but using our knowledge of the anatomy we certainly can tell whether we have a male or a female remembering that the female urethra is much shorter and that's exactly what we see here we see that there is bladder we see the pubic bones and the issue of pubic ramus at this point we see that there is passage of urine externally so this is another voiding urethrogram these are very important when they are done they can let us know of the patency and let us know that everything is flowing well within the urethra in the image that shows us the male urethrogram the voiding urethrogram we see here that we have the bladder remembering that from the point of the bladder we then go through the prostatic urethra this is where we'd expect to find the prostate gland from there into the membranous urethra and right after that membranous urethra we have that fixed bend must be very careful to observe for when um, when passing a catheter and here is the rest of the spongy urethra as we pass on out stress continence comes about usually after um, some trauma to the region and when the person coughs or laughs that increases the intra-abdominal pressure that increase in intra-abdominal pressure can impact the, weak, the weakened sphincters and therefore we can have some leaking of urine out it is often associated with older females who have had uh, vaginal deliveries of their, in, of their babies and it may or may not be um, after one baby after many um, but it's something that we need to remember to, to ask about so the first notation reminds us that the pelvic floor and the perineal muscles here are important for stability of the organs and to maintain continence and that was an important point to remember because we go on now into this slide which takes us through to a sister seal where there is a prolapse of the bladder into the vaginal canal so usually the anterior wall can be weakened and if that anterior wall is weakened uh, then the bladder moves inferiorly and into that anterior wall and protrudes through the vagina now again some common causes for the presence of a sister seal would be repetitive straining for bowel movements uh, constipation chronic or violent coughing heavy lifting being overweight or obese but again remember that these often go together with a weakened pelvic wall which again may occur as a result of um, labor my next slide I did change because if you note the heading it said changes alone I have put this here as possible changes I felt like after having had two slides that implicated labor for things that may go wrong in the female pelvic floor I needed to remind you that these are only possible changes and they don't always occur so possible changes that may occur in the pelvic floor during delivery there may be a weakness of the pelvic muscles again there are different things that could come about as a result of that size of the infant which is why we get quite concerned if the mother is gaining too much weight or if she has diabetes mellitus or gestational diabetes mellitus and if there's a muscle weakness that results 
uh, as a result of labor or different factors, then that will cause a reduced support for pelvic organs. And so we just discussed the cystocele, where there's a reduced support in the pelvic floor, that pubovesical ligament will not be sufficient to hold up the bladder, and so the bladder can move and protrude into the anterior vaginal wall. There could also be prolapse of the uterus, for example. Uh, here's a little case study. There's a 49-year-old male presented to the ER after being involved in a motor vehicular accident. According to the paramedics, he was the sole occupant of a car that had struck a utility pole. Now, on examination, the patient is intoxicated and groaning in pain. Abdomen is tender in the hypogastric region. Urogenital system shows blood coming from the external urethral meatus. And in the rectal examination, he has a high-riding prostate and absent anal wink reflex. Now, an anal wink reflex is literally um, on contact with the anus. It should close because that lets us know then that the nerves of that area have reacted, just like a reflex would, would do. Now, radiographic studies would be asked here. And if we're in the area of the pelvis, we'll ask for pelvic, uh, we'll ask for pelvic uh, radiograph. And so it's shown here that he's had multiple pelvic fractures. This is the um, actual MRI rather than just the radiograph, but it still shows us the important information. And we can see that we have here fracture and displacement of the sacroiliac joint on this side. We have separation of the pubic symphysis. There's tears through the sacral foramina. And remember that the pelvis houses all of the pelvic viscera. So you want to think now of the problems that may occur or the organs that may be affected as a result of this. We have talked, of course, about the kidney. We've talked about the ureters coming down and going into the bladder. So we will think first and foremost of the bladder that could be affected. Remember, in terms of our relationships, while we are in the urinary system, we have to think of the other structures that exist nearby. And so just inferior to the bladder, we also have the prostate and the rectum is posteriorly. So we consider that any of these may have been affected. The ligaments also may have been affected. And so we will, it's possible to order, because there has been blood seen on the external urethral orifice that's on the penis itself, we want to make sure that everything is patent, that the urine can pass freely and clearly from the bladder through the membranous urethra, or from the bladder through the prostatic urethra, membranous urethra, spongy urethra to the outside. So we may order a urethrogram, avoiding urethrogram again, where contrast has been introduced, and then you wait that we see the bladder has been filled and ask the person to avoid and follow the passage of the urine out. This is a normal urethrogram. This is what you expect to see. We saw this as well in the two-year-old boy before. It doesn't matter the age, really. What you're able to appreciate is the presence of the bladder. It's well filled. We see here the prostatic and then membranous urethra, that bend taking through to the spongy urethra. Going to this image, though, we suspect that this patient would have had a posterior urethral tear. And so even though the bladder itself is not affected as a result, because the pelvic bones in here have been disrupted as a result of this high-tension vehicular accident, we would see, or it is possible to see, 
that there's a tear in the urethra. That tear means then that blood and urine will collect inferior to the bladder. Usually as well, a digital rectal exam is performed at this point and you'll try to palpate for the presence of the prostate to ensure what you may find the prostate is somewhat higher than you would expect or unable to be palpated and that's termed a high-riding prostate. So this did not happen as a result of a direct trauma to the region, but because the patient was in the accident, that caused the fractures to the pelvic bones, and those fractures caused this disruption. So it appears that I have an early finish today with two questions for you. Keep forgetting the countdown. So the question tells us there's a 60-year-old woman presenting to a local hospital complaining of pain in her back. It's radiating around her right side. Ultrasound has been performed and it shows that there are multiple cysts visible on her right kidney. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? She is 60 years old, and so it's most likely to be autosomal dominant because it doesn't mention much about the renal failure in here. But if we break it down, we can, we've mentioned the cysts, and so we're bringing it down to either C or E with the autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease or autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. Remember that in autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease, uh, renal failure presents in childhood. And so it is unlikely that this patient would have made it to 60 years of age. So that means then that we would have autosomal dominant as our answer. Move on to... this question.
Before you leave, when we finish discuss this question, there's one more thing I must mention to you, because I did say we would talk a little bit more about it. And I'll just go back to clarify on the nutcracker syndrome, okay, before we break. So please don't leave immediately after the question. So a 35-year-old man was examined by ultrasound as a potential kidney donor. MRI studies are done, as other things would have been done. And they're saying that the left kidney seems to be absent, while the right kidney itself looks to be enlarged. So they're asking one of the best findings, which of the following best describes the findings of the MRI? And we will then look at the MRI and read this ourselves. We can look for the ribs and we can appreciate them, looking at the sacroiliac joint, the lumbar vertebrae, before of course going to the thing that we want to know. We'd expect to find another kidney over here, but we don't, you see what looks like one large kidney on one side. But there are two different pelvises and two different ureters. And so what we do have is migration and fusion of the left kidney to the right. Okay, so the clarification on nutcracker syndrome. Remember, we did, I did say to you that it, it is a possibility, or rather in the anatomy we talked about the fact we have the aorta, the right renal vein that goes over, and then we have the superior mesenteric artery that travels in front. And so there is the renal vein that exists between the aorta and the superior mesenteric artery. The reason why this is important is because for different underlying clinical scenarios, clinical reasons, you could have a compression of the renal vein by the superior mesenteric artery. And it's worth pointing out because if you have a compression, what may happen is then you get obstruction of the blood returning to the inferior vena cava. So now there's buildup, if you will, of renal hypertension. What happens as a result is of this renal hypertension, the smaller vessels inside the ureter can, they're quite thin wall, they're smaller, so they can rupture and the patient then complains of uh, hematuria or rather they tell you that they see some blood or even urinalysis, routine urinalysis will show some blood in there. And so where, whereas the, uh, this hematuria may present seemingly different from the underlying condition, it still lets us know quite importantly that there's something happening with that relationship inside, which is again one of the reasons why whenever we do our lectures, our labs, and when we stand look at our radiographs or images, try to highlight for you the relationships of structures because though we discuss one at a time, they tend to impact each other. So thank you very much for your attention. I am right here if you have any questions for a few minutes. And I'll see you in lab as well.